Check, check. We're here to talk about the story of the Fluency EP. Talking more, yeah. Talking. Talking. You guys are talking. We are talking Oh, really? A lot of talkers. I would agree with that. This podcast (laughs) is called Erase the Filter. Erase the Filter. Erase the Filter. I guess I'm not quite sure where to start, but I was thinking... um, Dave Bellard and I met in college at Clarion University of Pennsylvania in 1989. To be exact, it was the first day of our freshman year. After graduation, I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, and Dave moved to Los Angeles, California. We kept in touch over the next few years, and when Dave had moved back east to Cleveland, we started making music together under the name Jester's Longevity. It all started in 1998 when we spent a weekend hanging out at my house in Tennessee making the Fluency EP. It's the first of what would become a four-album catalog of experimental, psychedelic, and ambient dub music. The fourth album, International Love Songs, was finished seven years later in 2005. Dave now lives in Seattle, Washington, and I live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Even though we haven't made much music together over the past 15 years, we've continued to collaborate creatively. I have written and recorded music based on Dave's artwork, he has designed album covers for my bands, and when I started this podcast, I recruited him to become a regular contributor. We've also been sounding boards for each other's individual projects when we've needed to talk through our ideas. Well, as we both approach our 50th birthdays... I feel like I have to say that again. As we both approach our 50th birthdays, we were reflecting back on Jester's longevity and digging through the archives of audio and video and photos from our time working together on that project. What if we were to pick our favorite tracks from the catalog and work with that material again? We could use the latest technology to enhance what we had done and remove the geographical roadblocks of the past working collaboratively in real time over the internet. So that's what we're gonna do. More on that project here at a later time, but you can follow progress on the Erase the Filter blog with a series of posts that start with JL. For now, in a four-part series on this podcast, Dave and I are going to be looking back at the four Jester's Longevity albums. How did we make them? Why did we make them? What worked and what didn't? We're starting at the beginning with the Fluency EP. It was one weekend in 1998 with no ideas, no expectations. I had already been a rock musician for over a decade, but never really explored the limitless possibilities of experimental and ambient music. Dave had a desire to try his hand at creating the kind of music he loved, industrial, electronic, and psychedelic music from the fringe. In just a few days, we made something that has mattered to both of us for over two decades. Being open to spontaneously explore sound with no rules, launched a project that would last for years, and solidified a collaborative creative friendship that has and will continue to inspire and influence both of us into our 50s and beyond. Check out the show post for today's episode to stream the Fluency EP in its entirety. I was actually thinking about the fall of 1997 when you were in Los Angeles and you were moving back to the East Coast and I was living in Nashville, Tennessee and you stopped in to see me. On the, we, we hadn't seen each other for what, like five years? Since, since, uh, since you graduated from college. 93, so yeah, about four and a half years. I moved to Los Angeles uh, because my buddy was working for Steven Spielberg, and at the time, they were just starting DreamWorks. My buddy was an assistant at Amblin, which was Steven Spielberg's company. He said, come out, uh, you know, I'll probably be able to get you some, get you right, an interview right. or something in Amblin, uh, or maybe at DreamWorks. And I said, that's, you know, great. So I moved out there and I worked at, I worked at DreamWorks for a couple years. 
but I got sick of I got sick of Los Angeles. I just couldn't take Los Angeles, and I moved to Ohio. But when we when I was driving back, I stopped in at your place. No, fuck that. Mix it. We hang out, and I don't remember if we talked about making music that night. I don't think we did, because if I I was playing a lot of music in Nashville, I had my own thing going. We didn't, because I remember the exact first conversation we had about it. It was when I was at my cousin's house. It was at night, drinking beers on the phone. And I remember we just, I was pacing back and forth in the kitchen to the, to the, and we were talking about just like making music. Because I think what happened was you had your setup, your studio setup. And I think we probably were just looking at the studio and, like and I'm sure it just started percolating in my head. Sure. And we formulated the idea of like getting together and maybe just fooling around with no expectation of something right. anything solid coming out of it. I was renting that house in Murfreesboro and it was um me and my wife at the time and it was basically like a twelve hundred square foot apartment, two bedroom apartment, but it was a house, standalone house, and the whole living room was just filled with gear. Like we had a couch and a chair in there, but that was it. And then it was just, I had a studio, I had keyboards, my band would rehearse in the living room. It was just, it was just basically a jam room. <laughs> and then there was a kitchen and then a couple bedrooms. And um, yeah, when you guys came and hung out, it was probably like, wow, this is cool. You know, like we could do some stuff in this place. So it wasn't like a, an alien idea that we would fool around and do some recording because we had sort of done done stuff before i never would have imagined that the stuff we fooled around with in my dorm room in 1990 would end up sort of being the preview or the the precursor to four albums worth of music like something like 35 songs because i went back just recently and unearthed that stuff and found a handful of these recordings we did just completely experimental Uh, messing around with effects and microphones and whatnot in college. And it really is sort of the beginning of Jester's longevity. We didn't know it at the time. We didn't know it for for eight years later. So 1998, uh, it's Memorial Day weekend, uh, like the 23rd, 24th of May. You come down from Cleveland to this house in, in Murfreesboro. And what I remember of the session was that it was just a weekend of experiment. Like, I remember you had turntables. I had, you know, synthesizers, vinyl records, and sequencers set up in this living room. That first recording session, there was no expectation, no ideas coming in. No ideas coming in. We had no idea what we were going to do, as opposed to our later sessions where we we would have notes, we would have, you know, be ready coming into the studio with, hey, let's record this or let's do this, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that first session was just like... We just started fooling around. Fault Line is one of the coolest tracks. It's such, it's such a good, powerful beat. Heavy. Heavy. That's a, that's a heavy song. And, yeah. I th- and I remember making it, and I remember saying, like, this is reverb, dub this, you know, let's just make this thing freaking heavy. Heavy. 
that bass drum is actually, if you listen to Radio Babylon, that's one, probably one of my favorite Meat Beat Manifesto songs. It, it's f- six minutes of a loop. <laughs> Jack Dangerous is basically tweaking a loop. Then he pulls the reverb and, and, and just dubbing out this, this really chaotic jungle loop. I always zeroed in on that bass. There's a bass drum in it. Now, I don't, I, to this day, I can't think of why. I mean, there's nothing super special about it, but that, just that signature, that boom, 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 boom. Just something about that that you can build off of. Dave had actually spent a couple of years doing some work with Jack Dangers, the founder and leader of Meat Beat Manifesto, while living in California. I was doing a lot of stuff with his label and um, and with him with documenting the band for basically, I don't know, two years maybe. Uh, I had spent some time with him in his studio and while he was rehearsing for live shows. and I remember you telling me those stories and I, I wonder if there was an influence there of watching him, you know, dub out beats and loops and then bringing that to the table okay so being probably i don't know one of the biggest fans in america of Meepy manifesto i'm i'm sure of it i had everything i was one of his biggest fans just connecting with him that he lived in san francisco and i lived in los angeles and i just wormed my way into his life and you know was just there and seeing him create stuff and spending time i've stayed at his house you know and it was just a real honor and pleasure and i'm sure that i've always been into this type of music i've always yeah felt i could make it but never really pursued it as you bring it up i'm sure that that you know had something to do with saying like let's do something well i just remember you know i had never done that before i'd never um played electronic loops and manipulated them in real time with effects. I was a very um, prolific sequencer of beats, but I'd never done what you brought to the table. And I remember I remember that being a really cool thing and something that we did on re- subsequent records. Take a beat, program it, and then dub it out in real time and even recapture that as a separate track. I remember Frog City was just this complete departure from music for me. Like, I, I was a song guy. I was in Nashville. I was playing with songwriters. I was writing songs. I was a rock musician. And the, this idea of taking a loop and playing the loop over and over again and messing with it in real time, just it didn't, it didn't compute for me. Like, I couldn't. It was really hard for me to wrap my head around this whole idea. But I, but I really liked some of the mixes we did. Now looking back and listening to it, it's, a, it's pleasurable for me. And I've used it in a lot of podcast production and stuff because I just think it's a cool sound. You know, I was really heavy into beat music and that type of alt industrial hip hop type stuff. Uh, Simon Harris, who is a pretty famous beat producer in, in England, he put out these albums. And the beat is manipulated beat from one of those albums and played real time. The effects are real time. 
Yeah, and then you did a mix that was very light, and you added these keys, which actually has become like one of my favorites. The icicle mix. Yeah, the icicle mix. One of the things that I regret most about those early sessions was that I didn't appreciate real experimental music at that time so much. Like, I was very old school music business focused. You would make something that would be pleasurable and accessible by people to listen to. Alternative music pushed the edges of that. Uh, Industrial music pushed the edges of that. But you could still put on a, a record by a band that was doing some really edgy stuff. Meat Beat Manifesto, let's just say, as an example. And it's still, it's, it's like a song. There's a structure to it. There's Absolutely. a song structure to it. And there's a, you know, chorus and, you know. Exactly. Verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Yeah, and that's the thing that I didn't really appreciate so much was this uh, unfettered freedom to just make sounds. And looking back, I, I kind of look at some of the stuff that we made and I think to myself, wow, I could have gotten a lot more creative uh, in, in the moment of some of those sessions if I could have gotten past my own roadblock. Mm. And Frog City was one of those pieces that was like, I don't know what to do with this. Like, I just couldn't even, <laughs> I, I just couldn't even wrap my head around it. People talking about what they do can be really fucking annoying. Erase the filter. Come Bearing Arms was another dubbed out beat track that featured a very special guest. Hey, I'm, re- I'm ready to do it right here. Hell, I don't think I have to get up. I had an engineer friend who had access to a studio in downtown Nashville. It was a, a big studio, uh, mostly a demo studio for publishing companies, but it was really nice. And we could use it at night and on the weekends. The guy would give me a really, really cheap rate. So I started becoming interested in producing other bands. And there was a band from Chattanooga called Lamego uh, that was run by this guy named Chris Osborne. And, and I really started to like his music solo. And I listened to some four-track demos he did. And I said, hey, if you'd be up for it, I'd like to produce a demo for you in the studio. Because I really like your music and I really think it has potential or whatever and he was like yeah that'd be awesome and he was like but would you mind if i bring this band called lamego and i was like well that's fine with me as long as it's basically the same kind of stuff that you're doing solo and it was he wrote all the music these are the days when you're gonna rise please wipe the tears away from your eyes These guys came up from Chattanooga, and they were really cool guys. We had a blast hanging out. And there was this guy named Jack Smith, who was the bass player. Just a friend. They were old, like, high school friends or whatever. And um, he just started riffing on this, like, hillbilly voice. right? And, the, you know, these guys are all from Chattanooga, Tennessee. So they're they're su- southern guys, but, but they weren't rednecks at all. You know, they were... Um, pretty progressive guys you know but he would he started riffing on this this thing and i just remember in the studio we were in the big studio and i remember saying to the engineer hey would you capture some of that for me and i told jack i said just riff man just do it and of course we were all just giggling drinking and everything um i went back and found out that it was about two weeks before our session 
So it must have been fresh, right? When we were looking for samples, it must have been like, oh, I've got this guy. I've got a, I've got a cassette recording of this guy saying a bunch of stupid shit from Chattanooga. I remember when we were first listening to it and just the there was the one line. Uh, <laughs> I need a daily dose of poontang metal. <laughs> and I remember just being like, there's a sample. That's <laughs> like, it. That's it. Putting it on. You have to use yeah, that. Skid Row, Megadeth, rocks, man. <laughs> I need daily dose of poontang and metal. What else is there, man? Poontang and metal, man. That's it. I need daily dose of poontang and metal. When you talk about experimental, we have this really dub beat and this bass, this funky bass, and this, you know, these weird keys. And then all of a sudden you throw in this hillbilly talking about poontang and metal over top all reverbed out it's crazy it's just it's it's just so it's it's funny it's one of those things that i have context for because i know i know those guys and i work right. with them for a little bit right. even after that and but if you just got this random tape in the mail or whatever to review i can't even imagine what you'd be thinking when that shit came on it would just be like what the fuck At the end, we uh, we put on the sample from Man Bites Dog. Yes. The uh, Granny Snuff sample, where he's screaming, he's screaming at the grandma. The the interesting thing, if you go back and listen to these, is that they are kind of time capsules for the things that we were interested in. You can hear influences in the songs. You sent me a VHS tape from Los Angeles to Nashville that, that had that movie on it. Mm. You sent me like a almost like a mixtape, which was but yeah. it was VHS and it was yeah. like shorts and cartoons and yeah. just this different weird stuff and that man bites dog was on there. And I remember watching it and thinking, what the fuck? Yeah, it's really it's dark. I I must have been coming from a really dark place uh, with my VHS samples. The name of that song is in German. This name is Einer Problem is a problem. And the sample is a, a, film, a German film called Der Todes King, which is the Death King. The film is vignettes of, of seven different vignettes over the course of a week of either people murdering or people committing suicide. It's an extremely disturbing and dark film. And uh, there's a scene in it uh, where a guy's talking to a woman on a park bench and he's uh, talking 
I forget exactly what he's talking about, but it's this monologue basically of this guy. And I remember we recorded the monologue on it, on it, on a uh, handheld cassette tape that you could slow it down. And so we recorded it and we slowed it down. And that's so his voice is like, and it's just in German and it's affected. And it's just, it's very creepy stuff. That sick carnival. Yeah. It's not really a song, but it's a great piece of art. You were doing something with that glass slide. It made a really weird tone. And I remember saying to you, do you think you could do that? For like, if whatever, five minutes, do you think you could slowly just go down? You're like, I think so. And we just sort of did it. It's eight minutes long. But then there's the cicadas, which at that time, I don't know if it was a 13-year or 17-year cicada, uh, but Nashville and Middle Tennessee was infested with these cicadas, like to the point where it looked like snow on the highways, uh, the shells that they would, you know, either the dead cicada or the cicada shell. I mean, it was, it was like an inch thick on the highways. And I remember you would get out of your car to get gas and you would literally put the hose into your gas tank and jump back in the car and swat all the cicadas away there was that many cicadas and you couldn't escape them they were literally everywhere i remember i remember um walking down the road and you just stepped on them it was yeah. they were there was it was a plague and so it made sense that we were going to include the cicadas um yep. so my friend steve's son would have been, at that time, he probably would have been around 10 years old. I remember saying, hey, Stevie, go go get a cicada or two out of the yard and bring it in. He brought in these cicadas, and we recorded we recorded him basically just holding the cicadas and letting them chirp and do their thing yeah. right in the living room there. It was pretty wild. That beat is a backwards beat. We recorded the beat on the cassette tape, right? Because it's a four-track cassette tape. So we recorded the tape, we flipped it, recorded the beat regular. And then when we, when we turned it around, you can hear that it's a backwards beat. I mean, I think it's important to recognize that that the whole thing was recorded on a four-track cassette machine, a Tascam 464, which is one of my favorite pieces of equipment I ever I ever owned. It was just such a great piece of gear, um, and and really expensive for four tracks. Like at the time, I think I spent like seven hundred dollars on that thing, which you know, going back to nineteen ninety three when I bought it, that's that was a lot of money to drop on a cassette recorder. Um, but it was it was just such an excellent piece of gear. And the KS32 and Sonic keyboard, I still have. I, the, the problem is I don't have any of the sequences because they were on floppy disks. 
you had an external floppy drive. The thing eventually just broke and it just wasn't worth keeping around. So I don't have the actual patches that we used or the sequences. I have the a lot of the sounds. The capability of sampling and making loops and looping the things that we sampled really came out in in later albums. There was no digital sampling. We didn't have a sampler, so we were recording no. to tape from vinyl yes. anything that we wanted to capture. That's right. Um, and use within a piece of music. That's And I think that was one of the things that we even would promote uh, or we put as a as a point on the album artwork was there are no digital samples on this this is all live so to I speak i don't know if anyone gave a shit but. yeah i mean for the for the 10 people that got copies of the cd or cassettes back then we had cassettes the official version of the fluency ep included these five songs plus the icicle mix of frog city it was originally mastered by greg lane the engineer who i worked with on the lamego record we released it independently in 1998 to a very small audience and a handful of independent press. Not having any plan and not having any preconceived notions, we spent three days and came out with an EP. It was really a proving ground to say we were able to make something in a weekend. And, you know, 22 years later, we're talking about it and I'm enjoying listening to it. And that's, that's really fucking cool. This is Jason Mundock. Thanks for listening to Erase the Filter. Show notes can be found at erasethefilter.com, and if you have feedback about the show, feel free to email me at jmundock, J-M-U-N-D-O-K, at gmail.com. And always remember... Open your mind. Be yourself. Erase the filter.